0: to Injury Prevention podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention and each month I chat with a distinguished injury researcher or practitioner about topics of their interest. Today our conversation is with Professor David Hemenway from the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health, Harvard University. Dr. Hemenway is Professor of Health Policy and Director of the Harvard Injury Control Research Centre He's written widely on a range of topics including articles on firearms violence suicide child abuse motor vehicle crashes fires falls and fractures he headed the pilot for the national violent death reporting system which provides details and comparable information on suicide and homicide and in 2012 he was recognized by the centers for disease control and prevention as one of the 20 most influential injury and violence professionals over the past 20 years. In our conversation today, we'll be covering these topics and you'll see why he's been such an influence on the field. Hello again, David. Hey, Rod. Let's start, if we can, with some of your early years because uh, you and i both know that you've been in this game a lot longer than most of us and uh you've been contributing the entire way Uh, but you have mentioned to me before some of your early mentors and the reasons you got into injury was a little bit through personal exposure can we start the conversation there perhaps
1: sure so um in the 1960s i um worked for ralph nader it's uh, everybody in my age group knows who ralph nader is in the my students half of them have never heard of this person but he was this uh, they should look him up on Wikipedia. It's just this incredible personage uh, doing uh, work um, in motor vehicles, but in lots and lots of areas. Uh, a big reason motor vehicles are so safe now is because of Ralph Nader. So I got uh, involved in, in that, uh, doing um, uh, work for him. Uh, I, he got me a job with the Consumers Union as Washington correspondent. Then I came back and was a Nader's Raider and we investigated the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and I, my goal was to go back and work as a consumer advocate uh, after I got my PhD, but as things happened, I ended up being, uh, having to stay in Boston and was became a researcher.
0: Um, who was Ralph Nader as a person? Why did, why did he create this sort of impact that he's created over the time?
1: Yeah, so th- he was a lawyer uh, at Yale, and he had written this book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which had gotten very little publicity. But um, it's things sort of happened, and it got a lot of publicity. He he, it, there was hearings, and he testified at the hearings and talked about how uh, it wasn't just the driver that mattered. You could make cars so much safer, and and a lot of these cars were. Basically, it was so unsafe, they would catch fire when they didn't need to and so forth. Um, and he created uh, a whole lot of nonprofits to try to uh, combat corporate America. Uh, and um, he was really important in the all those things were important in the creation of the National Highway Traffic Safety
0: Administration. Okay. Um, what was your PhD title? What were you? What it did was, you do it on? Mine
1: it was about voluntary standards. Nobody knows about voluntary standards. It had a great title for a while. It was called Screw Threads, Two by Fours, and the Comic Book Code of Ethics. It was about how important voluntary standards are in people's lives and they know nothing about them. It turns out they're incredibly important about uh, injuries and people still know little about them. Almost all the mandatory safety standards that that were written initially for, for airplanes, for cars, for houses, were voluntary standards written by trade associations and engineering societies and made mandatory.
0: And you got you know, there from an interest, initial interest in advocacy. How did you get there? Because that's not a first step for a lot of people. Um,
1: I don't know. I, I I was really good in economics, but I didn't really, I thought it was pretty dull. Right. Um, I, I had a, uh, the reason I could be an economist is because I had a mentor named Tom Schelling, who Smart people in economics know who he is, but he did all these incredible things about conflict and coalitions and games and strategy. And I thought he claims he's an economist and if he could be an economist, then maybe I could be an economist and do interesting things um, And so those when I was 24 years old, those were my two heroes were this guy named Tom Schelling, who eventually won the Nobel Prize in Economics and Ralph Nader, who, uh, when I worked for him, was getting more letters than the New York Times. For the first time ever, people had somebody they could write to that complain about all these horrible things which were happening to them. You know, Ralph Naders, for example, the reason why when you get bumped off planes, you get money. It used to be you just were bumped off planes. you say, hey, we're full, too bad.
0: You don't right. like it? Have you yeah. out So you had one mentor who tried to understand the world and the other one who tried to change it? Yes. And... Uh, Clearly, you think of yourself and, and a writer. You enjoy writing from yes, what you've yes, already indicated. I, you know, my first book. So you've written a few yeah. since then.
1: Yeah, so I, I've written five books, Yep. Uh, all just by myself. Uh, my goal was always in research, I thought, I'd really like to do research about areas which were under-researched. So I, I didn't want to... Here's another study that shows that cigarettes cause another problem. You know, the 20th study that shows or that seatbelts save lives or whatever. And so uh, I, th- my first book was on voluntary standards, which, again, no one's looking at. My second book was about inspectors, which turn out, I think they were really important. Uh, they have this incredibly hard job. And if you pass laws, um, if, if you want to enforce the laws, you need inspectors to say, those you know, people are, aren't abiding by the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Uh, and they have to find the problem and then report the problem. And I uh, went on all these elevator inspections and and housing inspections and Internal Revenue Service inspections and police are inspectors and uh, uh, the, you know the, the the people who try to save the whales. Uh, uh you have these rules about fish fish of you know people who fish and they don't always follow these rules and so dolphins die and that's what inspectors have to do and i tried to write about when do inspectors have the ability to do a good job which is often not they have no idea the ocean inspector goes and people are complaining that there's so much noise they're they're, they're, and when the inspector is there it's very quiet uh, it, you know, <laughs> the companies turn down the noise. It's like the leaves, the noise goes up, but they have no documentation. They can't do anything. And then, um the ability, not only the ability, but the incentive to do the job. And sometimes they have very little incentive. They get captured pretty easily. If you're a nuclear power inspector and your whole family, you live in this remote area where the nuclear power plant is, and your family knows all the people, other families, and they're all dependent on the nuclear power plant to make a living. And your job is to find faults with the nuclear power plant and close it down. If they do something wrong and it's, come on, you're not going to do it. You just, you end up being captured and you just try to get the power plant to do as as much as that you can get them to do. Um, And uh, so it, that was really fascinating to me. And again, it's a still an area where I, it's, I think is really important in injury prevention that people haven't looked at. Um, then I wrote a book, which was my most fun book, which was just about um, 30 topics in economics that people hadn't written about much, mm. um, like tipping and temptation and lots of things. And, and I uh, made my uh, students read, the, bu- <laughs> read yeah. the book, but they liked it at a time. Um, and then so I wrote I'll, a book about guns and then a, a book about success stories in injury and violence prevention.
0: So I'll get on to the, the teaching element in a minute because that's something that you're really well known for and tremendous reputation for, for education in the field of injury prevention. But uh, back to your books, just to finish that off, do you think there's a theme that's running through that that's not obvious? That's the um, theme, uh, behind, I, I, a theme I just, behind the stories.
1: I, I just think it was, again, here are topics which... Um, nobody knows anything about. Huh. And so, like when I was in graduate school writing about voluntary standards, all my classmates were, um, you trying to f- get on the computer because there weren't any PCs then, and yeah. run regressions. And they all had here's, um, you know, uh, here's. They always said, "What is your hypothesis? You know, what, what, what do you, is this related to this?" That was always. And it's like I didn't have an hypothesis. I just knew that. I'd, I'd, one of the reasons I was interested in it is that Ralph Nader had written about something about voluntary standards. And he was, I think I was majoring in economics. I had a master's in economics. I'd never heard of voluntary standards and they were so important. It's like, how is this possible? Uh, and so my hypothesis was none. It was just, I got to find out something about this. What What in the world is going on? And it was always something like, where why are their standards where their standards and who created them and why and what was their incentives and why aren't there standards how did how did we get standards for steel um mm. uh, and how did we get standards for railway track gauges one of the things i found was that it was rarely the manufacturers who created standards for themselves it was often the buyers if there were big buyers so the reason we had standard steels uh, Initially at the turn of the 19, uh, being, you know, in 1900, steels were sold like toothpaste is sold with secret ingredients and it was this is, and th- these, the buyers didn't know what was, you know that had very bad information. And so they got the, the Society of Automotive Engineers, not the steel manufacturer engineers, but the automobile manufacturers engineers wrote standards for steel because they wanted to know something about the steel they were buying. And the reason they then got better steel is they forced the steel manufacturers to compete in terms of quality and price. Right. Um, And so that was important in terms of of automobile safety, even that kind of standard.
0: Yeah. Can I explore an an idea here that I'm really just developing as I'm hearing you speak? And that's, um, I guess, the distinction between econometrics and behavioural economics. It's economics—it's—it's—it's <laughs> it's putting people into the equation um, that you've just referred to. That you've clearly got an interest in creating change uh, through understanding uh, the, the complex way people use things uh, and respond to things. And uh, orchestration of activities and standardise of activities is actually a, an end result of a slightly more chaotic process of human-world interface uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to me to be the theme across your five yeah. books. So so
1: one of the things that economics really focuses on is when systems work well and when they don't. Right. So Adam Smith wrote about the invisible hand. And the invisible yep. hand is supposed to make it so everyone following their own self-interest society benefits. It's not mm. doesn't fall apart. But And what he wrote about, and then which a lot economists have tried to understand is when does the invisible hand really work and when doesn't it work um and in terms of standards for example the invisible hand is not going to work it's not like everyone following their own self-interest you get the right standards and and you change you have standards which are good initially and and so it's important to understand sort of groups how how how, is, how can you make it in people's self-interest to make changes? So like some, some standards, you get stuck with standards. The, the typewriter keyboard is QWERTY. If you look at it, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, and it's 120 years old, and it's a terrible keyboard. It's just horrible, but it was like the first keyboard, and it was designed so in the typewriter you didn't have letters which were close to one another. I mean, that's what you really want on an electronic you know, T word hip, but you tip one over here and then one over here and one over here and we can't change it. In the United States, we're still stuck with the customary system of measurement, Fahrenheit and and gallons and all oh, of It's just so stupid, but individuals can't change it. You need collectively to change it and we're not good at collective action. So right. we're stuck with these, you know, sort of path dependence on these things which don't sort of work very well. And standards are... One of these things sometimes it's really important for companies they fight the who's going to be the first to stand to, to whose standards going to be uh picked up because then mm-hmm. everybody's going to have to follow because there are often
0: such advantages to standardization right and for somebody who who believes collective action is the way to get things done rather than individuals uh, trying to create individual change you're right you've got a strong role in, or a, perhaps a, a career engagement in, in advocacy. Yeah. Uh, um,
1: I don't think I'm a very good advocate. You know, I, I think I was, a, I, it turns out I thought one of the things in economics is um, again from Adam Smith specialization and the division of labor. That's how society's advanced. I mean, mm-hmm. 400 years ago, people knew how to make their own clothes and they knew how to make their own food. And um, it was just hard to be good at everything. And Then people began to specialize in trade and turns out that's really good. And my specialist, I think I'm a much better researcher than I am um, an advocate. I get tired of uh, advocacy. And so I I try to, I think we know so little. And so I try to shed light on some, some stuff and I'm happy to talk to advocates and help them and try to get them to understand what the world's like. One of the things as I've gotten older, as I realize how little people really know about what the world is like, except for what they read and what they believe. I think I understand a lot about the world because not I've experienced it. You know, I've I've never gone to the moon or, or I don't know anything about really about global warming except what I've read. And it just seems hot. But the reason I think I understand it is because I trust the scientists who are experts who write about it you know in a world where we have 350 million americans and 8 billion people you, you just have no you just meet so few and you don't know in a sense what's going on and unless you believe in
0: science yeah and one of the um, your acknowledged strengths and certainly is illustrated by that book you We'll get on to now about the was it 50 successes in injury prevention is actually capturing science in a story in a narrative in something that actually is understandable by people who are non-technicians, and you tend to have done that time and time again, haven't you, over your career?
1: One one of the things I learned early on is that um, for me, and then I think it was, seemed to be true for everybody, is like when I was teaching teaching concepts, people don't sort of remember concepts; they remember examples. And so I would always try to say, okay, here's the concept, but here are three really important examples for so, sort of the that two years from now you won't remember you, What you remember is some story, some example, and, and then maybe you can figure out go back and figure out what the big point is. And yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I love success stories. And mm-hmm. and uh, the Centers for Disease Control was always saying, oh, we need to have understand about success stories and so I thought this is I like doing this so I like writing and and I when I wrote that book I I thought I knew a lot about injury prevention because I'd been in the been researching and writing and reading about injuries for at that time maybe 40 years 30 40 years um mm. there are so many success stories um and it has to do with what I do most research now on is about guns which is so controversial in the United States so I, I write this book in part because the CDC wanted it, but largely I wrote it for my students um, because they came to public health school and their parents or their significant others or their children still didn't understand, is this this more medical school? Is this what this is? What what is this public health thing? And and I thought, okay, just read this, just have them read this book and Mm -hmm. they will get an understanding of what really public health is about.
0: If in the area of voluntary standards Uh, you've argued a case for leadership being actually at the citizen level the people level Um, clearly there's uh, when you were talking about uh, how you get changes uh, in systems you need leaders of those systems to acknowledge that change is required so there's this interplay isn't there between the various distributed government structures in our society do you think there's room for people in the public to understand enough about injury to start to force the societal decisions towards improvement, or does it always go the other way?
1: No, no, I think, I think it's, so when I wrote the book about, um, success stories, Mm. it it was 64 documented successes. Mm. And it was also 36 heroes who, and I made sure there were no researchers or to, because otherwise, this you know, it's like I have to play favorites. And the, but these are mostly advocate, almost all advocates who most most people have never heard of. Probably all of them they never heard of. Who they weren't the only person pushing for this, but they were the key, one of the key people pushing for this change. And so they really mattered. Hmm. Um, And so individuals could make an enormous difference. What what I feel matters the most is that the individuals can help create a system so that the system continues to do good things. So it's not all these one-offs. I'm working, working, working. We finally got this one thing, but that's it. We're gonna go back to not doing anything else because the system is designed to not have any beneficial change. Um, And and so that's what you need is sort of you need both. And I think one of the things in public health is you try to bring individuals and institutions and people together to work together to try to
0: do something useful to to better society. Right. Now, one of the things that you have been able to um, establish is the mortality database at the national level. Um, Could you talk us through a little bit about how you created that? Sure. (laughs) Uh,
1: The older I get, the more important I think are data. If you don't have data, it's so hard uh, to to do anything scientifically, to get people interested, to, to figure out what to do, to um, determine whether or not you've had an effect or not and what more should be done or what less should be done. So, and data systems really, really matter. So so as an aside, I, I'm an economist. And 100 years ago, 90 years ago, economists created the national income accounts, uh, gross national product and so forth. And incredibly important for, you know, to stop... Of business cycles and so forth. And business what business does is when you use up your inventory, that's a negative. You look at here's the benefit, you sold all these things, but it costs you things. You 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 had to produce the things and then you lost inventory. And if you lose lots of inventory, that's not so good. The GNP, the way it's set up, is does not care about inventory. We can in the United States in the world, we're using up all our natural gas, we're using up all our coal, we're using up all our oil. Pretty soon, we won't have any, maybe that's good for the climate. And we're also using up our safe water. We're using up our clean air and our safe atmosphere. And none of that is a negative. It's all this extra stuff. So I used to have these arguments with my dad. He'd say, oh, these environmental regulations, they're reducing productivity. And I'd say that's only because you're measuring productivity wrong. And they're really increasing productivity because you, you didn't count as a negative. All the destruction of the environment that's going on. You know, here's this company, it's, it's wrecking the, the Great Lakes. You don't count that as a negative. That's not productivity, that's negative productivity. And what we're doing is overall, the overall benefit is so much greater than the overall cost. And if we had measured that. People wouldn't be saying, "Oh, we need to drill, baby, drill." So it's good for the economy. It's just no, it's bad for the economy. It's just that we measured things wrong. So anyway, back to the the data is so important, and and we decided, and we had these national conferences with researchers and surveillance people and government people. We just said we're not going to create first. We're not going to create a data system for non non-fatals it's just too hard in the short run we're just going to do fatals but secondly it's not going to be guns it's going to be violent death it's going to be all homicides all suicides and we put in unintentional guns in there and this was great for the researchers because they wanted to know if you didn't kill yourself with a gun were you going to get killed by something else was there a substitution or was there complementarity um it was incredibly, uh, it wasn't very much more expensive because I say it's almost all the violent death is with guns. So it didn't cost much more. I just played a little role. I was the PI and, you know, and people in my group, uh, Deb Ezreal and Kathy Barber did so much, but so many other people did so much and helped promote it. And it's this huge group effort. I, I, you know, looking back on my career, I, I suspect this is the most important thing I've ever done. Uh, all the 250 research articles the five books the all the teaching is important i guess hopefully keep your fingers crossed a little bit but this thing can last forever hmm. and it will make a difference about understanding what's going on about violent death in the united states yeah. and so many articles now are being written finally it's in all 50 states we're using the system and just as now we know so much about motor vehicles and what works and what doesn't work for safety, we're going to learn about guns for the first time, about homicide and about suicide. So I just think I was so lucky to just have a little role in in uh, helping create the pilot for this system, which I think they still use our basically our 250 page book that says, that, and again, it's standards. That's what it really was. It says, all right, how are we going to code these things so we all code consistently and comparatively? There, there, here's a Russian roulette. Is that mm. an accident when somebody actually dies? Is it a suicide? Mm. What, what should we call it? And it doesn't really
0: matter. It's just everybody call it the same thing. Yep. And it, it puts science into the conversation, and it creates an opportunity for people to actually recognize the size and nature and extent of a problem uh, and bring collective effort to try and do something about it. So yeah, nice... you, you, you,
1: here's, here's my, the example I always use about the importance of these data yeah. systems and yeah. is so um, in the 1990s in the United States, um, it was, became clear from the data that 16 year olds were at incredible risk for motor vehicle death. Mm-hmm. I think it was like three times the rate of 19 year olds per mile driven and 19 year olds mm-hmm. are terrible <laughs> drivers and like yeah. 10 times the rate of 40 year olds. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, what can we do? But the data showed something. Here's what you can do. You can. You know, we didn't have simulators for everybody, and is there were two times where it was incredibly risky for these 16 year olds. And one was at night when they were driving, and the other was when there was only other teenagers in the car. So uh, the state of Michigan, I think following New Zealand, or um, said, all right, let's let 16 year olds drive, but Let's not let them drive at night or when other, you know, other teenagers are in the car. And they created just called graduated driver's licensing. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they saw what happened, and there was good data to show it reduced motor vehicle deaths by this by these, per mile driven, something like 30%. Not, didn't save them all, but still saved a lot. And so then, once Michigan did it, then I don't know Wisconsin or you know looked and said, mm. hey, they can do it. Why can't we do it? And mm. other other states did it, and they all found you know between twenty and forty percent reduction in motor vehicle deaths to these young kids. And within nine years, all fifty states had these laws, mm. and we've saved
0: a lot of kids. And the importance of data and research. If I can be uh, allowed to make an observation on on your. Suggested earlier on that you you just want to understand how things happen, and you're a scientist. Most of your conversation, at least in the second half of this uh, discussion, has been about how to make a difference. Uh, So you've got uh, how many lives we can save, and and uh, missed opportunities to save more. And then you've actually described in some of your stories some very sophisticated implementation mechanisms. And a lot of the time, I think scientists and researchers do a lot of watching and observing but don't take that next step you've done. And it's actually analyzing the situations in a way that allows us to actually change things in the real world. As you say, we don't know a lot about the real world. We need to understand it more if you're going to make that difference.
1: I I think one of the things that attracted Mm. me to public health was um, that there was an expectation. Now, it didn't turn out to matter at all in terms of promotion and really, you know, Mm. (laughs) your real career. But there was an expectation that you were supposed to help make the world a better place. It wasn't just you were doing research. It wasn't like public healthology, the study mm. of public health. It was mm. the goal is to make the world better. And and I think the reason I ended up in public health was just because I I serendip- serendipitously taught a class at at Harvard mm. School of Public Health and uh, I just fell in love with the students. I, they were they were about my age. They were in their <laughs> early 30s and they were do gooders in the best sense. They were, a lot of them were docs who were going to give up a lot of money to, to try to work in public health. They had realized that one at a time medicine was useful, but it wasn't doing enough. And that public health had this allure that maybe it could really make a difference to tens of thousands, millions of people. Um, and I, I liked them. I thought this, these are, these are, these are my kind of people. And so I tried to figure out how to, how to stay teaching at the school. And, and I, um, I think it's a, a lot of their stuff rubbed off on me too. Cause this was my, you know, having worked for Nader and that whole thing, you know, it's like, this is what, one of the things you really want to do. There were a lot of people who were want to be doctors who like doctors, who like nurses who like medical care. I just wanted to stay away from medical care. And I thought, what else can I do? And I thought, I, I can do injuries. I can do, I know a lot about motor vehicles. I can, and I started investigating fires because that was a huge problem in Boston. And at the time in the, in the early 80s, there was a huge problem in the United States. Um, and I started teaching a course on injuries mm-hmm. and two well-meaning, nice uh, full professors separately took me aside and said this is a big mistake there's uh injuries a are not a public health problem and b there's no money because it's not a public health problem and i being you know naive and i thought ah but it's an important problem how could not be public health all these people are dying if you die before the age of 40 you're dying of an injury you tell me it's not a public health problem and fortunately for me in 1985 there was this report injury in america by the national academy of sciences and it's It didn't teach teach me anything. I knew all the things. But it was an incredible political statement because it said, this is really important. We ought to do something. And CDC said, oh, if the Congress wants to give money, this is what we want to do. And suddenly Mm. there was money. I I just Mm. read this book recently about the history of public health. It was written in, I don't know, the early late 50s and early 60s, I think, about all starting in the Roman times, all up to... Mm. There, there's like a paragraph about accidents. Mm. That's it. Mm. That's the only thing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh my goodness. Um, anyway, so I was so I was so lucky, and then we, we were able to become an injury center. And then what I <laughs> loved doing, I think more than anything in my co- career, that, that wasn't writing, was thinking how can this is a new field. What can I do to help create to this field? It. Yeah. What what, what can yeah. I what kinds of things would make this a real field rather than here's just mm. some people doing motor vehicle work. And here's some people doing child abuse work and how to really expand to make it something worth. And I was in, and, and CDC gave a little money to do that. They had money to do specific research, but it was also this notion that part of your task was to, that this was new and we were trying to mm. create something
0: new. And I love that. I thought this is. Yep. Yeah. And I do think think there's another conversation in just that topic alone that's worth having at some stage, the idea of uh, injury prevention as a field, as opposed to people doing force research, people doing motor vehicle research. I think we're a long way ahead of where we were but uh, your comment about um, two well-meaning professors saying what on earth are you doing injury for is probably going to resonate with a lot of people who are listening to this uh, even some unfortunately the younger generation
1: yeah i, I mean I'll, t- I'll tell you we, i've gone through a lot of deans and the the biggest thing i uh, we have a great dean now but the biggest thing i really felt like i used to do with the deans in in effect was they would give these talks about what the school is doing and how important all these things were, and it was, all, it was all disease. I mean, it was all... Mm. And, and I would say, you know, it's a like Harvard School of Public Health, we really care about reducing disease, and I would say, and injuries, and injuries! Mm. <laughs>
0: yeah, just enough of an irritant to make sure you get your point is sometimes a good thing in an academic, isn't it? So thank you very much for your time today. It's been a, a fascinating conversation and a really well, Thank you, thank one. you.
1: I mean, any, anybody
0: just wants to hear old people pontificate, <laughs> It's, it's great. We've been listening to a fascinating conversation with Professor Hemingway from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Harvard University in Boston. For those of you wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered today, I invite you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember to download these Injury Prevention podcasts on the first Thursday of each month from your favorite platform or app.